This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And I suck you up and I spit you out and I play with your babies till you scream Welcome to Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast you need. We are so happy you're here. This week is the first of two episodes where we will focus on the best of 2017 from the sports world and specifically at Burn It All Down. I'm Jessica Luther, and I'm joined today by the whole crew, Amira Rose Davis, Lindsay Gibbs, Brenda Elsie, and Shireen Ahmed. Before we get into the meat of the episode, I want to take a moment to remind you all about our ongoing Patreon campaign. On Patreon, you can become an official patron of the podcast by pledging a monthly donation to Burn It All Down. Your donation can be as small as $1 per month or as big as you'd like. And in exchange for that monthly donation, you get access to exclusive content, such as special Patreon-only podcast segments, a monthly newsletter curated by the hosts, an opportunity to add to the burn pile, and more. The support from your Patreon donations will allow us to continue to afford quick, high-quality editing and to provide transcripts for each episode. Beyond that, we hope to hire a part-time producer to smooth out behind-the-scenes work that it takes to put the show together each week. In time, we even want to take this show on the road and record live in front of audiences, including you. You can find a link to our Patreon campaign in the show notes of this episode or on our website. We are so thankful to everyone who has donated so far. Thank you. Now, on to the show. Today, we're going to talk about our favorite sports stories from this year before we unveil and play for you our favorite segments from the podcast so far. Let's get into it. Okay, friends, I'm excited to talk to you all about this. I'd like to start with one that works chronologically, but that I also think is on everyone's list, so I get to take it first, which is that Serena won the Australian Open, beating her lovely sister Venus, all while doing it pregnant. (laughs) I love that story so much. I know. You're welcome. <laughs> Who would like to go next now that I've taken the best one? On the tennis note, I'll, I'll continue that. One of the most joyous tennis stories to me was Yelena Ostapenko's win at the French yes. Open. She was just so good. And to have this teenager come out of nowhere. And look, she finished the year at the top 10 and the year in championships doing well. So she was able to really back up that performance with by becoming a solid elite you know, WTA player on a weekend, week out basis, but her run was just, it was spectacular. We were literally seeing a star be born in front of our eyes. I loved it. That's great. Amira? Yeah. Well, you know, my personal favorite, I'm not going to lie, was seeing my team Boo. come back in the Super Bowl. Although I know that <laughs> was many people's pile. unfavorite. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so I won't even include that formally. So I have to go with 
two stories. One, Catherine Switzer returning to the Boston Marathon. You know, she was the first woman to run the marathon, that famous picture of the race official pushing her out of the way. And she not only ran, but she finished the race with a time of 4.44, which is only 24 minutes difference than the time she ran 50 years ago. So that was pretty badass. But the real story that was like my kind of personal favorite was a story out of Iowa about Alexis Hernandez, who's a track and field runner who graduated in May. And her picture went viral. She did graduation pictures of her on the track with her cap and gown. And they all included her daughter in the picture. And it made me so happy to see her kind of be celebrated and uplifted for for her accomplishments on the track and in school and as a mother. I was also a teen mom. I had Samari in college. And it's just really great. It goes a long way for hashtag no teen shame. And it shows you what you can do when you have a village behind you. So that was my feel good story of 2017. Oh, that's lovely. Shireen, what about you? What'd you love this year? Gotta say that one of my favorite things that happened this year was FIBA, like striking down their hijab ban, which automatically included tens of thousands of players, the most potential players, Muslim women, Sikh men, and Jewish men who choose to wear kippah. It was years in the making, and the rule had effectively sidelined a lot of basketball players. So yay for the Hoopers. This was a huge win for the basketball community, the global community, and it was definitely one of the things. I can't say it was a total moment of joy because I think there's a lot of exhaustion behind it, just sort of relief. But it's a good thing. I'm not a basketball player, but the ones that I know were thrilled and I was really happy about that. That's awesome. Brenda? Yeah, well, it's a big banner year for women's soccer. The UEFA Women's Championships were huge and wonderful, and they got just the right kind of coverage. And the Women's Mexican Professional League came out with a huge year. I mean, the attendance for the final was, you know, 30,000, 40,000. Despite the rocky beginning, that was a pretty awesome achievement for them. So I enjoyed all those stories of women's professional soccer, both mobilizing and achieving this great success. But my all-time favorite story is Leo Messi. And his hat trick trick in October in Quito away in Ecuador to put Argentina in the World Cup. He's gotten so much flack. He never represents the right masculinity for Argentines. Mm. And he's such an assist player. He's such a playmaker. He is very selfless despite his tremendous talent. And there was a moment in that game where he was just like, teamwork's great. I'm going to get it done. (laughs) I just just loved it. I reveled in it. I've watched the highlights whenever I'm depressed. Oh, love that. Oh, my God. Lindsay. All right. Well, look, after mocking Amira for her loves, (laughs) I must say that the Tar Heels winning the national championship this year was a really exciting moment for me. I'm a huge Tar Heel basketball fan. And anytime you get to see your team win it all is – there's just really no no substitute. But for me, even despite that, I think the basketball, college basketball moment of the year was Mississippi State taking down UConn. Yes! <laughs> I was thinking yes! that. How yes! did nobody bring that up until now? Oh, I don't know, man. But as soon as you said that, I was like, oh my God. 
Morgan William itty bitty with that shot in oh, overtime. God. I mean, I have, I still, I literally am getting goosebumps just thinking know, about it. It was, that game was incredible. <laughs> it was so much fun. I literally want to go, I might watch, I have to watch that like fourth quarter again, like right now. Like that was. <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting here in a Yukon Husky sweatshirt being really sad. Oh, but that's okay. Oh. Yeah, but that game, oh man. That's like what we all want sport to be all the time. Yeah. Sports can be so good. Yeah. Oh, they really can. And one of my favorite oh. actually moments of that was Gino Arama's smile at the end. Kind of just like, like he had known that that game was coming and he had done everything in his power not to let it come, you know? But he knew that this team needed a game like that and, and needed a big test. And I mean, he was devastated and mad, don't get me wrong, but like he's also he just so... threw his players under the bus. But so... <laughs> yeah, and I mean kind of... <laughs> it, oh, it was just, just what a moment what a moment wow well this has all been so lovely i want to add before we get out of here that sloan stevens and her run yes. at the u.s open and the those semifinals oh. with madison keys and venus williams and sloan stevens and getting her check and just like everything about that <laughs> was so much fun. And the last thing I'm going to add is in the sports media world, Claire Smith getting the JG Taylor yes. Spink Award, the top honor for a baseball writer this year during the Hall of Fame weekend. Quite a highlight. So thank you all for a great conversation and for a great year. Now on to our favorite segments of the year. Oh, episode nine. How I love listening to my co-host break down the era of Kaepernick in the most righteous of ways. Shireen, Jessica, and Lindsay give you one of the most cogent discussions on why Kaepernick deserved to get a job and why the haters, including institutionalized football reporters, are just straight-up racist mouthpieces for the NFL. Enjoy. So this week... We're going to talk about Colin Kaepernick. For those who don't know, just in case, Kaepernick is a 29-year-old professional quarterback who made waves last season when he chose to first sit and then kneel pregame when the United States National Anthem was played at football games. So he repeatedly and patiently told anyone who asked that he was making that choice because he wanted to draw attention to racial injustice in this country, and especially police violence against black Americans. He's also put his money where his mouth is. As of early last month, he's donated $700,000 of a promised $1 million to organizations across the country working towards social justice. This includes places like Meals on Wheels, Asada's Daughters, Black Veterans for Social Justice, and the Center for Reproductive Rights. So he left his former team, the San Francisco 49ers, at the end of last season, and he remains unsigned. Huh. Wonder why. So the narrative, of course, is that Kaepernick is toxic because his views turn off NFL fans, by which, of course, everyone means white fans. But also, he had the 17th most popular jersey during the month of May. So someone likes him. Chip Kelly, who was Cap's coach last season in San Francisco, told ESPN's Adam Schefter this past week, quote, We heard from the outside about what a distraction it is, except those people weren't in our locker room, and it was never a distraction, and Cap never brought that and turned it into a circus or whatever people think. The 49ers general manager, John Lynch, also went on record this past week to say, quote, I would tell you with my conversations with Colin, he is fully committed to wanting to be in this league. 
Lynch went on to say that he told Kaepernick, quote, I think the way you could best help yourself is to not have someone talk for you, not have statements, but go sit down and do an interview and let people know exactly where you stand, because he makes a compelling case as to how bad he wants to be in the league when you talk to him. Okay, so none of this, of course, from Lynch or Kelly, inoculates Kaepernick from media think pieces like Yahoo's Dan Wetzel, who a couple weeks ago wrote a piece titled, quote, Colin Kaepernick is making his choice. Activism over the NFL. Whoa. <laughs> Grown. <laughs> of course, this, you know, what Kelly said, what Lynch said, this doesn't sell Kaepernick to the white male owners and general managers of NFL teams. So I know we've talked about him, Kaepernick, everything around him before, but like, where are you guys with this story at this point? Like, how are you feeling about all this shit with Kaepernick? Lynn's. Yeah, I mean, I am just sitting here appalled by the conversation that's going on. I think, like you said, Jess, what you're having is a lot of these, I would say, institutionalized football reporters, the Peter King, the Albert Breers, the people who live their life uh, dealing with these sources and dealing with access journalism, essentially acting as a mouthpiece for the league, um, justifying why Colin Kaepernick isn't signed. We've heard so many ridiculous excuses coming from these reporters, coming from sources, whether it be that he doesn't really want to play, which he has said is not true, whether it be that his vegan diet is making him too weak, which (laughs) people who actually train him say he's in the best shape of his life. You know, I mean, time and time again, you're seeing whether it be he can't play anymore, he only will take a starting position. Well, we've also heard from his camp that that's not true. You know, it's just time. Time and time again, you're hearing excuse after excuse and the dwindling amount of respect that I had for the league. And look, I I'm a fan of a team with a vocal black quarterback, not in the same way that Kaepernick is is vocal. This is I'm talking Cam Newton, but I've seen up close and personal because I follow I'm a huge Carolina Panthers fan and uh, follow the news to a sickening degree. <laughs> but I see how every a couple of weeks there's a story coming from an outside source about a, how what a bad leader Cam Newton is, how he's getting paid too much, he's too much of a showboat. There are letters to the editor in Charlotte. I, I see the scrutiny he, he's under, and he's trying to tone down the politics of it, um, which I don't agree with, but I understand. And so the way Kaepernick is being treated is just, it's appalling. He should absolutely have a job you guys there are so many bad quarterbacks in the nfl (laughs) there are so many bad quarterbacks in the nfl and it's it's infuriating it's despicable i was really 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 disappointed with the seattle seahawks i thought that they were going to be the team that was going to sign him it would be in a backup role to russell wilson but seattle's a very progressive city uh, Pete Carroll seems to like to let his coaches, his his, his athletes have a mind of its, their own, be able to speak their truth. But I think I have some suspicions uh, based on some of the research I've done as to why they didn't go forward with it, which might have more to do with the dynamics of the locker room and the locker room not loving Russell Wilson as much and not not wanting to give the locker room a reason to rally against their franchise quarterback, which I understand, but it's just sickening. It's just gross. Shereen or Jess, somebody. <laughs> I, I think I think that, uh, well, I know that Colin Kaepernick is the only reason I own 
uh, NFL jersey. Like he drew me in because I like my politics. No, I like my sport with politics is what I'm trying to say. Also, this brings us back to Mahmoud abdul Rauf. I've seen a lot of writing about him recently. And this isn't new. Like this type of blackballing and maligning players and prominent black athletes is not new. And it's not new to American sports culture. We've seen it before. And I really like that Mahmoud abdul Rauf is coming out there and speaking about his experience. And I've been following him for a long time. And he has been far more vocal. I mean, obviously, He's been scarred because his, you know, his career was derailed, but he's been far more vocal in the last couple of years. And a lot of that is because of the support that perhaps I'm just hypothesizing here that he's seen Cap get. And I didn't realize that his jersey was still selling so well. I'm excited to hear that because I believe last year it was a top selling jersey. And, and just like really, really quick, I think it's important to also recognize that I, I saw this tweet and it really hit me that we're still not really far off from the death of um, Muhammad Ali and he was revered and lauded in sports media for doing the same thing that Colin Kaepernick is doing and I just think the sort of the the juxtaposition of those two and how they're treated is I mean don't get me wrong the history of how Muhammad Ali at the time was treated but have we not learned anything clearly not I mean like this isn't for me it's appalling that the the, the op-ed pieces, whether they're about Cam Newton and uh, what type of appropriateness, showboating, like we hear it about P.K. Subin, we hear it about black athletes. We don't hear it about white athletes showboating. I've never read a piece. Can somebody, some listener I would love or somebody send me a piece about a white athlete showboating? Because I've never read it. (laughs) It doesn't exist. (laughs) It doesn't exist. Sorry, Jess? Yeah, I think Abdul Rof is so interesting right now because he's actually back. So he is part of the Big Three League, which is this new three-on-three league that Ice Cube is running. Is that correct, everybody? Yeah, uh, I love Ice Cube. <laughs> so, like, he's do- he's back doing his protests that he did while he was playing in the NBA. And I think that Lindsay might have some quotes that Abdul Raf uh, said about Kaepernick recently. Yeah, uh, for Think Progress earlier this week, I kind of wrote about this. Um, he told the New York Daily News. Uh, back when the anthem protests started that he expected for Colin Kaepernick to get blackballed. This weekend at the Big Three uh, opening, he said, he's being blackballed. I'm not surprised. As soon as it happened, I expected it. The same thing happened to me. And this is what he said to the undefeated in in an interview from September last year. This is once again, right after he uh, Kaepernick started his protest. So let me just read you this quote, because this just really stuck to me. They begin to try to put you in vulnerable positions. They play with your minutes, trying to mess up your rhythm. Then they sit you more. Then what it looks like is, well, this guy just doesn't have it anymore. So we trade him. It's like a setup, you know, trying to set you up to fail. And so when they get rid of you, they can blame it on that as opposed to it was really because he took these positions. They don't want these types of examples to spread. So they've got to make an example of individuals like this. He told that to the undefeated in September of last year. And that's exactly pretty much what we saw, what we've seen happen to Kaepernick. Wow, that's really powerful. It is really powerful. I'm grateful that he's, he shared that and is, is, is on the scene. Like, I love him. I, I'm so grateful to Ice Cube because um, we're so close and everything, right? Like me and Ice Cube. <laughs> yeah. no, I, just, just, I just call him Ice. Just call him Ice. I want to be friends with him so badly. My husband's like, it's never going to happen. Um, 
<laughs> so if he's listening, call me. <laughs> but um, no, I think that uh, this is so incredibly powerful. And the fact that this happened 20 years ago to like Abdul Rauf, um is still, it's still relevant. And that's the scary part. Like I said, I don't think we've learned anything. And I just think anytime we talk about Kaepernick and what's going on in the NFL, it's really important for us to say again what a lie it is that the league will do whatever it takes to make money. Because that's clearly not true. And Kaepernick has shown that, that they have limits to what they will accept in order to make money off of somebody. And I just think it's like this whole thing makes me so angry that it seems so blatant what is happening here and people will buy any excuse as Lindsay was talking about earlier the whole thing about his vegan diet I mean like they'll <laughs> buy anything other than that he is threatening because he's pushing on systemic inequality and he's being vocal about it and he is a black man doing that um and I just think we have to keep saying this over and over again about what we're really what he's really revealing in this moment about the league but also about this country Sure, Lynn. Yeah, I just wanted to quickly reiterate, there are so many people in the league who have been accused of domestic violence and sexual assault, and they're welcome back to their teams with open arms and not just the ones who are super talented and franchise players. But I also want to point out that Kaepernick's protests spread all across the country. They spread to high schools, to middle schools. You had middle schools having conversations about race and police brutality and what it means to be Black in America because of Colin Kaepernick. It's incredible the work he did and the impact that he's had. And I hope that he gets to continue to do that work and gets to continue to, I want him to continue to make money because he's doing good things with his money. So I just hope that this can stop. Before we move on, Lindsay, you had a fantastic piece about tracking uh, the the high school, I think, movements, the um, anthem protests. Did you not for Think Progress? Yeah. So I, I spent about three to four months last year with an intern pretty dutifully checking and tracking all the protests as they spread across the country. And it was one of my favorite pieces I've done. And spoiler alert, I've got an update of that on that piece coming in the next month or two at Think Progress. We're going to kind of wrap that up. Um things got a little crazy, I think, progress after the election, and I never got to do the wrap up that I had uh, planned on. But I'm but it's been really amazing to revisit that piece over the past couple of months and continue to see all the ways that these protests have spread. And just the conversations that have been happening. I mean, I've seen so many schools have had special talks and special assemblies about police violence because one of their football players kneeled because Colin Kaepernick was kneeling. It's opened up these really tough conversations in places that usually don't have them. We do a lot of really great work at Burn It All Down, and we're very proud of that. But one of the most profound discussions we've ever had as co-hosts is the one Lindsay, Jessica, Brenda, and I had in episode 23 about mental health. We talked about our own experiences. We shared stories of athletes who had written about their struggles of mental health, and how we benefited from those. Hope you enjoy. The first week in October was Mental Health Awareness Week. I have to say that behind the scenes here at Burn It All Down, mental health and our managing of mental health is a discussion that we have personally a lot. I know that I've been really inspired both by talking to other people in the business, by talking to friends, and by talking to athletes and reading about athletes 
who are open about their mental health struggles. So we're just going to start by having just a discussion just between us. Jessica, do you want to start us off? Yeah, I do. And I want to talk about an athlete and a piece that has meant a lot to me over the last couple of years. And September of 2015, Marty Fish, who used to be a tennis player for the U.S., he wrote a piece for the Players' Tribune called The Weight, and we'll link to this. It was the day before what would be his last ever professional tennis match, that one played at the U.S. Open, and he had struggled in the previous years because of heart problems, but also anxiety attacks. And as he neared the end of his career, he began talking very openly about his mental health struggles. And so like the month before, in August of 2015, at the time that he announced he'd be retiring, he told the Washington Post, quote, I want people to know what I've gone through to be a role model and a success story for people that maybe struggle with mental illness and for people to remember my career in a positive light. So I was diagnosed with anxiety and depression in January of 2013, and I've spent many sessions in therapy in my life, decades of my life. I've been on and off meds. I am every day learning how to manage it all. And the Players' Tribune piece, it was Fish's first-person account of his own struggle with intense anxiety, and it just really meant something to me. There's such a loneliness to mental illness as if you're the only one and your experience of it is yours alone. And there's like a constant self-questioning about whether what what you're experiencing is real or some drama that you've whipped up. And it feels so completely wrong when the worst, when you have the worst moments and when things are going really well for you. And so Fish discusses how the idea that I wasn't good enough was a powerful one. It made him, that idea, it made him better, but it also never let him rest. I related in a truly deep way to his trouble sleeping and not being able to sleep alone, like needing someone else there. Nighttime is always the worst time for an anxious brain. He describes his anxiety attack as a spiral, which is the word I've always used to explain how quickly I get from anxiety to depression and why it's so hard to stop it. And then before I pass the baton here, I just want to read a quote from the piece. It's It's towards the end. And Fish writes, quote, I am here to show weakness. And I am not ashamed. I'm going to to cry reading this, you guys. In fact, I'm writing this in a lot of ways for the express purpose of showing weakness. I'm writing this to tell people that weakness is okay. I'm here to tell people that it's normal and that strength ultimately comes in all sorts of forms. Addressing your mental health is strength. Talking about your mental health is strength. Seeking information and help and treatment is strength. So yes, this, all of this. Thank you, Marty Fish, for these words that I still think about over two years later. They make me feel seen, understood, less alone, and yes, stronger. So yeah, that's that's my athlete tie to all of this. That's incredible. I still think about that piece a lot too, Jess. And I, I have to say, I actually interviewed Marty Fish this summer. And one thing I asked him how he's doing with his mental health, and he was just as candid as he's always been that he's doing better, but there it's not a magic, I'm better, I'm fixed, this is done. And I thought, wow, like you were so inspiring. But anyways, Marty Fish talked to me about how he had just gotten a job at ESPN and he was working as a tennis commentator and he'd actually just gotten back from Wimbledon. And he just talked about what a big deal that was to travel over there by himself to work all those days in a row and be able to show up at work all those days in a row and be able to work under that pressure and how much he really enjoyed it. And listen, that's something I can't obviously relate to working at ESPN every day, but it, it, was, it was something powerful. All right, Brenda? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting for me because I've always struggled with anxiety and it's sort of contradictory because exercise is one of the ways that I feel better. 
So Mm -hmm. on the one hand, sports is this place where athletes are under incredible stress, you know, elite athletes. And I think it really matters that a lot of them are supporting more than just themselves. So they feel extra pressure not to admit that they're having problems and to keep it very inside. I mean, a lot of the interviews with athletes are explaining that they're scared that if they come forward, that they're jeopardizing a career which provides for more than just themselves. I feel for it. And it's such a contradiction to me because on the one hand, the experience at not an elite level, but just like a person, you know, struggling to keep an eight minute mile is that exercise in the gym is such a like wonderful, positive space for my mental health. And it's such it can be such a destructive space for some people. So it's it's an interesting thing. I remember just just about five years ago, the chief medical officer of the NCAA, Brian Hainline, declared mental health as the number one safety concern of the NCAA. Oh, wow. And he said that, and it's changed, you know, it's really caused a change, a shift to looking at mental health as part of the whole health of the student athlete. I think that's been really, really important because we know that participating in athletics helps particularly women who have you know, low body image and low self-esteem. So they have body image issues. And and we know physiologically it helps them to adjust that body image. And yet, and yet, once again, you know, really elite NCAA gymnasts report how terrible their body image is and that they're feeling under the microscope. So it's a real pressurized situation. And it's, I think it's just a fascinating process. Shereen? One of my favorite athletes of all time is a Canadian, a former Olympian and Canadian athlete named Silken Lauman. She's an oars woman and she is a single scholar. I think she wrote doubles. I've always been unbelievably impressed with her. She had an accident, I think, eight weeks before she competed in Barcelona where she won bronze. She was currently number one and she pushed through. (laughs) And I think eight weeks later, she recovered in that time. She had like a skull go through her calf. And she recovered like her memoir is incredible. But in 2015, she started to talk about mental health issues. And my challenges and my struggles with depression and anxiety were diagnosed much later after I had children. And so she talks about being a mom and being a stepmom. She has a stepdaughter who's severely autistic. And she talks about how she was sort of trying to manage her own mental health when she didn't even know because she talks about this, that her own mother was had undiagnosed mental illness. But at that time, women could be institutionalized against their will without getting proper treatment in a way that was more holistically understanding. So Lauman's memoir was was incredible for me. And her speaking about her story is is really powerful. So I'm just going to read the small excerpt that came out and of her writing. This was for, it was on HuffPost and then CBC News picked it up and it was made a lot of headlines in Canada because she's such a formidable personality here. I knew how people might react. When I told my soon-to-be husband that I suffered from anxiety and depression, he looked at me with confusion. When I told him that I took a pill daily to keep my anxiety at bay, he looked a bit alarmed. What are you like without your pills, he asked sheepishly. I felt angry and frustrated, but I got it. Many people have no experience with mental illness. They don't understand that anxiety can be low-grade and persistent, and sometimes a person's liver isn't their best friend. 
I explained to him that an antidepressant didn't change my personality. It didn't make me any less. It simply lessened my feelings of anxiety and being overwhelmed. And for me, that was a lot of it because at times people were like, oh, well, you're so busy. Like you have a mom. I mean, you have parents that are aging or battling some type of illness or whatnot, or you're a mom of four kids. People were all making excuses. But finally, I got a doctor that said, we're not making excuses. Let's talk about how you're feeling. Let's talk about how we can manage this. And there's no shame in it because also being from a South Asian community, historically, there's a lot of shame around mental health issues. And in terms of saying that, because people People always think, oh my God, she's crazy. Like, <laughs> and there's that's ableist and it's unfair. And for me to get someone who, like a, a primary care physician who understood how I felt and helped me, but I started reading about it and I got more strength from Silken Lauman and I actually tweeted it out when I got her book or I Instagrammed it and she liked it. And I was like, oh yeah, she liked it. Because for me, that was <laughs> very affirming that her words, she was someone I looked up to for decades and her words meant so much to me and that feeling of her being honest about being overwhelmed and you feel my shoulders get physically heavy like I, it's hard to explain sometimes but her explaining that exact same feeling was just it was it was so important for me you guys are amazing <laughs> I wanted to give a shout out to Shamik Holtzclaw, who is a former WNBA player who's been very open about her own struggles with mental illness and a lot of other bad stuff in her life. There was a great piece by Allison Glock on ESPNW this week that we will link in the show notes. But what really struck out to me was the desire to make she talks about the desire to make everyone around you comfortable. So not talking openly about what you're going through, wanting everybody else to feel okay. And I'm just going to read this one excerpt. It says in 2006, Holdsclaw was rushed via ambulance to the hospital after swallowing several pills. She survived, but kept the suicide attempt largely private. The official story was she was sick and dehydrated. Page says the team told media that Holdsclaw was out to take care of a family matter. Months later, Paige was one of the few peers to whom Holdsclaw confided. She said she kept it from me because she didn't want it to be a burden. Even after trying to end her life, Holdsclaw believed she owed it to her grandmother, her teammates, her coaches, everyone who banked on her to keep up the facade. I didn't want to, want to seem weak in anyone's eyes, she said. I put this cloak around me. I related to that strongly because I have battled depression, anxiety, and ADHD, a really fun cocktail, my entire life. I've literally lost, I believe, years in my 20s because the depression just kind of consumed me. And now I'm 31 and I'm as functional, as, as mentally healthy as I've ever been. And yet there are still many days where it's a struggle to get out of bed. And during these times, I really find myself distancing myself from those close to me. And it's really a lot of times it's because I'm afraid that once I get on the phone with them, I'm not going to be able to keep up the facade. <laughs> like I'm going to break down and I'm going to have to tell them because these are people I love so much. And it's so hard to let people in because there's no easy fix. I'm on medication. I do go to therapy and I am, like I said, on a day-to-day -day basis better than I've ever been. And yet there's still a lot of, a lot of hard times for sure. Our next segment is from episode 12, when Shireen and Jessica discussed women's cricket. 
But it's more than that. It's about the problems women's sports face on a regular basis, which, as you know, is an ongoing theme here on Burn It All Down. Check it out. So as we are recording this across the pond in England at the Lord's Cricket Ground in London, England is playing India in the final of the Women's Cricket World Cup. The event is sold out with roughly 26,000 spectators watching the action. This is no small thing. Here is what Tim Wigmore of the New York Times wrote about this watershed tournament for women's cricket. Quote, For the first time since the Women's World Cup began in 1973, the players have received daily expenses equal to those provided for men in International Cricket Council events, and the visiting teams flew to England for the tournament in business class, as has long been the norm for men. Prize money has increased to 2 million, 10 times the figure for the previous tournament, which was held in India in 2013. The competition, which started among 18 on June 24th, has so far attracted a global television audience of over 50 million, an 80% increase from 2013. And then there are the more than 26,500 tickets that have been bought for Sunday for today, a record for a Women's World Cup match. It is also about six times the old high mark, 4,426, for any women's match at Lourdes. So the World Cup has been played since 1973, but it's been a rough go, sometimes in search of enough teams. Most often they're in search for money and resources. It's actually only been since 2005 when the International Women's Cricket Council and the International Cricket Council became one that the Women's World Cup has been held at regular four-year intervals and actually had secure funding. Here again is the New York Times Wigmore. Quote, perhaps most significant has been the growing interest in women's cricket in India, the economic powerhouse of the men's game. In 2015, India introduced national contracts for its elite players, becoming the last of the top eight women's teams to do so. Mitali Raj, the captain for India's team and a former badass woman of the week on this podcast, told the Times, quote, It would be a revolution for women's cricket in India if we go on to win the World Cup. It would be a real big thing. We'd be in a better position to promote the game and create a brand value for women's cricket. This just reminds me that women are never just playing sport for sport's sake. They're always playing it for the future of the sport and for the girls coming up behind them. This is no different today. So now I don't want to pretend that I understand cricket because <laughs> I've actually never watched a match in my entire life. That's my Americanness shining through. But before I hand the baton off here, I do want to give a shout out to India's Harmanpreet Kaur. In the semi-final against Australia last week, and let's be clear, Australia is the most dominant team. They're the defending champions. They have won six of the ten World Cups so far. Core was spectacular. Here's how CNN described her play. Quote, the Indian women's cricketer drew worldwide acclaim for her historic 171 not out against Australia to send her country through to only its second ever women's World Cup final. It's an innings that has been compared to some of the best in one-day international history. Only three players in the history of the competition have recorded a higher innings score. So, it shouldn't have to be said, but I'm going to say it anyway. These women can play. Shereen, I know you're freaking out about what's going on right now in the final, so why don't you tell us your thoughts on this Women's World Cup? Admittedly, I'm of South Asian descent, so cricket plays a huge part into my family, and I have cousins that play competitively. And the only reason, and they'll probably kill me when I say this, that I got really interested in cricket at all was because of women. I started to follow Pakistan's uh, Girls in Green, and that really started to have me pay attention. I was very confused by the rules of cricket and have been, and I was really only in it for 
for the food, like the kebabs and the baratas at the family gatherings, let's be honest. So, um, <laughs> but I really, really started to get into it because of this. And this particular Women's World Cup has been very exciting because the amount of coverage, like I followed the T20s, I wrote about the West Indian women last year and, and, and when they won, and it was wonderful. I wrote for Galdem about the Wendy's winning because the men had won and the women had won and the solidarity was really incredible. And I've seen the likeness of that with the girls in blue, the Indian team. Harman Preet Kaur's like achievement was incredible when they played against Australia. There were, you know, Sachin Tendulkar was a former Indian player. He's retired now. He's considered one of the greatest. He was tweeting out support. Everybody was ooing and eyeing. It was as they should be. She was literally slaying it. And it was so exciting to watch because of the excitement, which I had never seen before. Like Cricket India is constantly tweeting about it. Mithali Raj has her own hashtag on Twitter, her little emoji. Like this is and as you said, she was our baddest woman of the week a couple of weeks ago. Also, the the way that the women respect each other is incredible. After the match against Australia, Alex Blackwell actually gave her jersey to Cor, which in a show of solidarity and oh, support, awesome. which I think is wonderful. Yeah, and it's this kind of stuff is important to encourage each other, and it's very very competitive. But I mean, his, cricket has, if we look at it a little bit historically, has long been in the blood and the veins of these women. It's just giving them an opportunity to get out there and showcase their talent and show the world. And I'm excited about. But all of it. I mean, I did not put this in the burn pile, but this morning ESPN Crick Info website, when it listed the matches, said there's no current match happening right now during the final. So people are like completely shutting them down. So I mean, there's still some work to do here, but this is this is incredible. It's very, very exciting. Shireen, didn't something happen with the Pakistani women's team when they returned? I saw you tweeting about it the other day. Yeah, I was uh, I was raging about this on Twitter. The girls in green, as they're known, I love them. They're led by Captain Sanamir. They've worked quietly and diligently and faced a lot of obstacles. Um, they returned back to Pakistan after they lost all their matches in this World Cup, and it was they did they didn't do very well. Like undeniably, it was a bit of a dismal performance. But when they returned back, there was nobody from the Pakistan Cricket Board. It was reported. Uh, by the Tribune, I believe, um, that nobody was there to receive them. Oh, wow. There wasn't a member, there was no staff person, and more importantly, there was no transportation. So one player actually called her dad, who came on a motorcycle and drove two of the girls home, and there's a photo of that. Now, everyone started, you know, rage tweeting as expected, and this is not how you treat a national squad. This isn't how you do it. You want to develop in a team, you invest in them. Yes, they're not going to win all the time, but that doesn't mean you leave them stranded. Then there was rumors that the PCB was going to fire Senamir and, and and replace some of the senior players, and I just, it was in such poor taste, and, and, and it was really bad timing. Like, they had, didn't have a great run at this particular tournament. They'll suit up and they'll try again, and they'll do again. And I, I mean, yes... Pakistan men have won the most recent tournament, but for years before that, they won nothing. So, I mean, I'm not trying to say, oh, it's the same as the men's game. We know it's different, but support for women's sport is crucial, and particularly when it is still developing. So I was I was raging, and the Pakistan Cricket Board did release a very, there's no other word for it, but meh statement about it and said, no, there was a misunderstanding and it was wrongly reported. But no, the source that reported that was was legitimate. And I just, I was really, really angry about it because those women have gone without support and without funding. 
enough funding for a really long time. So the world of cricket, as exciting as it is, we hope that other countries and other boards, you know, look to the way India is supporting its women and excited about it. And hopefully they'll catch on. Yeah, I think this is one of the really frustrating things about women's sport in general is that they historically they're massively under-resourced compared to the men's game. But then when they go out to play, they're expected to always win. Like if they're not winning every single thing, then somehow they are undeserving of the very little resources that they've already been given. Like it's a horrific catch-22 that makes it really hard for women's sport to grow. Like there's no way to win in that setup. And I feel like this is such a great example that they just didn't care about them when they came home because they didn't win enough. But as you said, they haven't been supported in their country in the way that they should have been for a really long time. And if you're really going to grow a game, you have to take the losses with the wins. Like that's part of athletics and the sort of expectation for women is so incredibly high. And, you know, all these Indian women cricketers, when they've been interviewed about what's happening with their team and how well they've done, they talk about what it means for the future and how important it will be for the growth of the game within their country. And that's just the immense pressure there to win, not just to be champions and the excitement of that, but the pressure to grow the game. It's just so unfair to women's athletes. Like, it just shouldn't be that way. And I'm just infinitely frustrated at, at this this setup for women's sport. And a lot of the a lot of the uh, cricketers that have been interviewed talk specifically about that. What you said is key to grow the game, to inspire other girls to play and to get them involved and let them know that they belong on that field. And it's so interesting that they're never just focused. They're, you know, determined to win, but they're always focused on growing the game. And that's just it's so key here. And I mean, what I, I thought about this with my cousin last night, actually, who was trying to say, well, you know, small steps, small steps. But I mean, I'm, I want more steps. I want better steps, you know, to support women in sport. And sport development for women doesn't work like that. If you just expect them to win all the time, you've got to invest in them. You've got to invest the time. You've got to invest proper coaching, equipment. I mean, it's only a couple of years ago that women were actually given memberships to cricket clubs in Pakistan to practice. They had no specific field. So it's got to come. And then at the same time, they're expected to win everything. Like, it doesn't make sense. I hope that what comes out of this World Cup is excitement and understanding and a commitment to develop and invest further in these women. Finally, we want to end this episode with a look back at each of our favorite burn piles. First up is Shireen from episode 21 towards the end of September. I'm going to join Brenda and throw the FA and the <laughs> England's women's football management administration in the burn pile with their handling of Mark Sampson, beginning with his hiring, as we know, and we're discovering now, rather, that he was totally unqualified and inappropriate as a selection generally. So for those that don't know, Mark Sampson has been the manager of the England women's national soccer team, otherwise known as the Lionesses. It emerged about, think about five, six months ago, Enia Luko, who is, was last year one of the highest scoring on the team, she came out with allegations of racism and inappropriate, I mean, inappropriate in the sense that I'm going to use that word because it's what the British media uses with comments 
and remarks like something to the effect of when she told him her family would be coming to watch, he said, make sure they don't bring over Ebola. It's, oh. it's disgusting. Like, he's disgusting. Yeah. It's disgusting. Gross. So he refuted these claims. The FA, this is lovely. This is where it gets great, did their own investigation on themselves and their employee and found themselves to be innocent. This is excellent here. I love this. It's like reminiscent of FIFA and their bullshit. <laughs> so they ended up firing Mark Sampson, but not because of anything Eni had said or another teammate came out to say. And what ended up happening was they investigated the report again, like they revisited the report that came out. And he was fired because of his actions while a manager at Bristol previously, and his conduct with young players. So this could be anything from texting. It could be anything from, I don't know the details, like they haven't emerged yet of how bad it was, but it was bad enough for two chief executives of the FA to come out of an UEFA meeting conference and come back and deal with this. And as we know, the FA is pretty substandard in how they govern everything, like most men in the football governing world. So just torching that. And I hope I'm also seriously unimpressed with the lionesses generally and how they handled Eni's case after they scored, they beat Russia six, nothing, but they went and all hugged him after a goal, which Eni publicly stated was unfair, particularly because she had been chosen as a liaison between management and the team before. And it was like a slap in the face to her. It's fine and good until you actually call the family out on racism. You can be part of the family until you talk about racism and systemic discrimination. So torching it, torching all of it. The next two are from Lindsay and Amira, both from episode 26 at the end of October. The College of the Ozarks. It's a unique private Christian liberal arts college in Point Lookout, Missouri. It only has about 1,500 students. It proudly calls itself Hard Work U. On Monday, the college announced it was requiring every freshman to enroll in a patriotic education and fitness program. This class is, is going to teach students about modern military customs, American politics, flag protocols and procedures. There's also map reading, navigation, <laughs> rope knotting, and rifle marksmanship. I'm legit shuddering. <laughs> I'm, read you- I'm oh. never going there. I'm never going there. <laughs> <read> you- <laughs> There's more to burn. There's more to burn. The class seems to be a direct response to athletes across the country taking a knee, obviously. This is a Kaepernick uh, response to Kaepernick. In September, the College of the Ozarks. Wow which I might say is a Christian college that was named the most unfriendly school for LGBT students by the Princeton Review. So this school announced a no pledge, no play initiative in September, which not only requires Ozarks athletes to stand at attention during the Star Spangled Banner, it requires their opponents to stand at attention as well. College of the Ozarks president, Jerry Davis, his quotes about this are, quote, we should be more intentional about patriotic education. And from our point of view, that needs to occur from kindergarten all the way through college. Patriotic education is not inherited. It must be taught. It must be modeled and emphasized. It is the United States of America, Davis said, not the diversified states of America. Oh, <laughs> I just <Burn>. <laughs> Burn, burn that Confederate flag. Oh, wow. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Amira, what got you incensed this week? 
Yeah, this week I was really irritated to hear that junior Emily Nash in Massachusetts, who plays golf and has been playing with the boys team since eighth grade, won a golf tournament at Blissful Meadows by four strokes and yet was not given the trophy or the chance to advance for state. Why? Well, I will tell you. Because Massachusetts Interscholastic Athletic Association, that's the MIAA, their rules state that, I quote, girls playing on a fall boys team cannot be entered into the boys fall individual tournament. They can only play in the boys team tournament. And if they qualify, they can play in the spring for the girls state championships, if so desired. So this means that her stroke counts for the team competition. And if the team was to advance, which they didn't, she could compete with them. But individually, and as individuals, she is not allowed to advance the states or get the damn trophy that she <laughs> earned. And before you Jesus ask me, God. as the boys, this is something that is getting more and more attention in central Massachusetts. And her runner-up tried to hand her the trophy, which she said no. And it's seems like it's absolutely time for MIAA to revisit this rule. If she can play, then let her play. And if she wins, give her the damn trophy. I'm burning it down. Burn. Give her the Burn. damn trophy. Here's Brenda from episode 18 in early September. The New York Times ran a story this week that broke my heart about a doctoral student named Christina Suggs at Florida State. She was running some courses in hospitality while getting her PhD. And the article mentioned her as a single mom, but Suggs made the mistake of actually trying to teach, asking the same things from all the students, including the football players. And when she reported the pressure she was getting from her supervisor and players to inflate their grades, the administration of Florida State did nothing to support her. In fact, very quickly, she found herself out of a job and out of the program. The New York Times actually published some of the students' plagiarized work, and it's like it's this cut and paste job from Wikipedia that if if you've ever been in a college setting where you're teaching or, or, or privy to this, is a classic device, right? Suggs ended up without the PhD, but with lots of debt and stress. And shortly thereafter, in 2014, she died from an accidental overdose of prescription medications for pain, anxiety, and depression. So I just want to burn, 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 burn the FSU administration and the whole practice of asking teachers to bow down to college athletics. Burn. That is burn. that's awful. Burn it. Heartbreaking. Oh my it's god! It's just it's I, I it's ki- it's killing me this week. I just I can't get it out of my head. So thank you for that cathartic burn. Here's my favorite of my burn piles, which is followed up by one of our favorite burn it all down moments from 2017. This is from way back on August 1st in episode 13. So last weekend, I wanted to watch a match in the women's Euro competition. I knew the game was on. I had checked the schedule earlier in the day. So I was confused when I brought up the guide on the television and I looked at ESPN's two channels, you know, ESPN, ESPN2, to see which channel the game was on. To my surprise, on ESPN, there was something called the basketball tournament. And on ESPN2, they had drone racing. I was so confused. So I went back to check the schedule again. So and it turned out that if I wanted to watch some of the best women football soccer players in the world, I needed to hook up my Chromecast and stream the game from a device since that was only that was the only way it was available. 
The quality was pretty low, too. I just want to complain about that. Uh, it was pretty blurry. My husband suggested that this was on ESPN side because so many people were watching that it was coming through blurry, which, you know, huh? Funny about that. And so I would today like to burn ESPN's coverage of drone racing over and above the women's Euros. Burn it. Oh, yeah. Burn. You know, it's funny, too, because ESPN actually showed cornhole slash bags, depending on what you call it. You know, the game where you throw bean bags through a hole. They had that on ESPN, too, one yep. morning instead of women's yep. soccer, which is just yep. unbelievable. <laughs> Isn't that just like a drunk game? Sorry. It is. Like cornhole. <laughs> Seriously, like, why, don't they just, why don't they just call it beanbag throwing? Like, why the fancy name? We call it bags in Chicago. Is that fancy? <laughs> cornhole. Cornhole. Sherita, I, don't think, I don't think cornhole is a fancy name. <laughs> but it does make you think it might be more interesting. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I don't know what like, you guys are doing up there in Canada. But cornhole is not fancy. You know, I like. I happen to. I happen to love corn on the cob. So anything with food draws me in. So I think this is maybe in it. I don't know. Well, that's probably why they call it that then. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you for joining us, and thank you to Hofstra University for their continued support. There's so much more content than what we provided today. This is the 34th consecutive week that we've published an episode, so there's plenty more where all of this came from. We encourage you to look back at our catalog and see what from Burn It All Down you've missed. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. If you want to subscribe to Burn It All Down, you can do so on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. For information about the show, links and transcripts for each episode, and to email us, check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com. And now for some asks. If you enjoyed this week's show, please share this episode with family, friends, work colleagues, neighbors, people at the dog park you talk sports with, whomever you think would be interested in Burn It All Down. Also, please rate the show at whichever place you listen to it. The ratings help us reach new listeners who need this feminist sports podcast but don't yet know it exists. Finally, please check out our Patreon and give us a gift this holiday season. If you can, sign up to be a monthly sustaining donor to burn it all down and get exclusive content you can't get anywhere else, such as Patreon-only segments, a monthly newsletter, and even a chance to contribute to the burn pile. You can find the Patreon at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash burn it all down. We really want to continue and improve this podcast. We're really grateful to everyone who has signed up so far. Thank you. That's it for Burn It All Down. For Amira Rose Davis, Shireen Ahmed, Brenda Elsie, and Lindsay Gibbs, I'm Jessica Luther. Next week, we'll be back with our favorite interview segments from this year. Until then, and in this case, until next year. See you in 2018.